Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Robert Delfino. He teaches over at St. John's and Holy Apostles College, and he's going to be helping us understand and defend the fifth way of Thomas Aquinas. Dr. Delfino, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jake. Well, we figured we would begin by reading the fifth way of Aquinas so it can be fresh in our noggins before we proceed. So let's see what Thomas Aquinas says. We always like to consult him. The fifth way is taken from the governance of the world. We see that things which lack intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end. And this is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way so as to obtain the best result. From this, it's obvious that they achieve their end not by chance, but by natural inclination. Now, whatever lacks intelligence cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence, as an arrow is shot to its mark by the archer. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. So what on earth did we just read? <laughs> you just read the shortest of the five ways in the Summa Theologiae with a slight translation modification by me. <laughs> of course. I hear that's the best translation. Ah, no, not really. It's, mo <laughs> it's mostly the Dominican Father's translation with a few tweaks by me. But listen, before I go any further, I, I hate to do this, because, but we're in the 21st century and we live in a crazy world now. So let me just state for legal purposes, that I'm speaking only on, about my own views, and what I say here has nothing to do with either of the universities or colleges I'm affiliated with. I just got to throw that out there. All right. Well, this is <laughs> going to be good then. If we if we have a, a little caution before we begin, I was just worried you were going to say pronouns, and I was going to hit the finish recording. <laughs> <again>. <laughs> Don't even get me started. Okay. <laughs> All right. So let me just make um, a general comment. Um. You know, this is a this is a paragraph. I think that I think it's only 105 words or something like that. This is a very short, um, almost like a sketch of this argument for God. And the reason why I want to mention this is, um, you know, a lot of people will sometimes read something. If that if that's Aquinas, who's this super giant Catholic intellectual, if that's his best argument for God or one of his best, like this is terrible. Um, and I think what we need to realize is that. A lot of textbooks, either through laziness, confirmation bias, or a few, or maybe because it costs too much money to quote more than paragraphs, they don't give um, detailed explanations of these ways. They just give this paragraph and let the reader of the textbook, you know, struggle with it. But that's no good. Aquinas says in the prologue to the Summa Theologiae that he's writing for beginners and that he wants to be concise. And he wants to be clear and he even go he even talks about how a lot of other textbooks ramble on and on and they don't get you know they, they they confuse the students so obviously this is a short little um sketch of this proof that in the classroom aquinas i think would flesh out in much greater detail so i just wanted to state that i don't know if that helps clarify some things for the listeners but it's an important point i think that's very important to have up front um it's it kind of reminds me of how people will hear some of the five ways and go, yeah, but how do you get to the Christian God? How do you get to a God who's simple? How do you get to, it's like, whoa, 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 slow your roll and flip the page. <laughs> Aquinas spends lots of times with those other things, but this is just, this is at the beginning of the Summa. This is sketching out, these are five ways, and now we have to go down the way. So how on earth do we do that? All right. So 
I should probably be honest with you and tell you I have a love-hate relationship with the fifth way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or at, least, All right. or, at least, or at least I used to. Um, as I'm growing older now, I just hit the big 5-0. Uh, I, I am starting to like the fifth way more as long as it's massaged properly. <laughs> I see. Okay. The reason why I'm not a big um, fan of it is because, you know, there's a lot of work uh, a person has to do to ex explicate what's going on here. And of course there's the big elephant in the room evolution, right? Um, I mean, clearly when Thomas had the fifth way in his mind, I think a lot of what was going on in his mind, not, it's not that this was the only thing that was going on in his mind, but a big part of it was he was looking at the world. He sees bees making hives and honey and pollinating flowers, right? He sees uh, all these animals, you know, birds are making nests and they're all acting uh, in regular ways uh, to do things that are good for their survival and, and, and to get them what they need, right? Like the bees uh, need the honey throughout the winter so they can feed on something and not starve and all that. Um, and he obviously uh, knows that many of these animals, if not all of these animals, uh, have no intelligence like humans do. And therefore, you know, how can non-intelligent creatures um, act for an end r routinely, regularly? Um, that's good if they lack intelligence, right? And so it's natural um, for him to think that God's providence is uh, God's planning is here, right? Um, that there's there's a cosmic intellect, you know, behind it all. Of course, you know, Richard Dawkins reads this and he goes, "Ah, evolution destroys this because we can explain how, uh, you know, um, bees and other things acquired these natural inclinations and, and things like that." But it's not, you know, in, in the 21st century, I think as scholar, you know, this is weird. You know, as history goes on, there's more and more for scholars to learn. Right. And it becomes more and more difficult. And I wonder if the laziness factor goes up because a lot of people and I saw this in graduate school, they like the quick kill. You know, if you can come up with two sentences that refute Immanuel Kant so you don't have to read his, you know, thousands of pages. Of course, the temptation is like, oh, oh yeah, you know, that doesn't work. Uh, so the quick kill here is to say, ah, oh, bio biological evolution kills this argument. It's over. However the astute person looks at the last few sentences of the fifth way where Aquinas says, therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end. So it's not just living beings. In fact, living beings only comprise a very small part of the universe, right? All the planets in our solar system besides ours don't seem to have life, but they have tons of um, minerals and elements and other things on them, right? Um, and, and they're orbiting around the sun and there's all these things going on. So things are directed to their end, even non-living things. And that's where I think we can reconstitute a more modern version of the fifth way from Aquinas. So any comments on that? So I, I think that's definitely helpful. I can imagine somebody trying to make a similar evolutionary argument for natural things. Uh, for instance, the ever-present objection of multiverse this or multiverse that, <laughs> that um, any stable universe would require some type of uh, uh, stability in the nature of agents. We're in a stable universe, therefore it's just required that we would have these. So what would you say to someone who says, uh, well, maybe many universes, you know, get spit out and if only a few stick. And of course, we're going to be in one of the ones which stick, where, okay. where electrons act reliably. 
so <laughs> you've already anticipated my lecture, right? <laughs> so um, I promise I will get to the multiverse and I will say a lot about it. But let me just, I want to lay out the, the general argument first and then we can pick it apart with the objections. So to reconstitute this for the 21st century, let, let, let's use the electron. As you know, I use that in the book I, I wrote with Fred. Um, electrons are obviously not living creatures. Now, I know there's the panpsychism <laughs> objection. We'll get to that later. But I really have a hard time believing the uh, electricity in my TV is alive. And we'll talk about that later. Um, well, let's just say for argument's sake for now, you know, an electron is, is not alive. And therefore, it has in, in no sense does it have... Uh, knowledge or intelligence or anything like that right well and by the way electrons precede evolution uh you know they're 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 at the beginning well they you know right after the big bang not, not a long time after electrons are there um so biological evolution cannot be used to explain why electrons acquire any kind of natural inclination to be attracted to the proton so what do we have with the electron electrons are and this can be tested in labs and you know they they are attracted to protons, and this is a great thing because, well, on a practical level, you know, uh, iPhones and cell, <laughs> cell phones wouldn't work if electrons weren't attracted. To, you know, circuits wouldn't work, and then we would have sad lives maybe. Or maybe not. Maybe we'd, we'd be happier, right? <laughs> we'd be with family more and playing baseball instead of playing video games. But anyway, um, but on a deeper level, uh, it's not just about creature comforts. If electrons aren't attracted to protons, you don't get the elements on the periodic table. If you don't get the elements on the periodic table, you're not going to get carbon-based life forms like you know humans. So we would never be, and that seems kind of sad. So here we have something that's not alive, it's not intelligent, and it has a natural, it seems to have a natural inclination to um, bind with uh, protons. Now, can we explain this? Um, activity of, of you know bonding to protons through chance or any other uh way and the answer is no now you seem to wanted to jump in there so any comments so far no I, I think you should keep on expanding this i think that focusing in on simple inorganic things which are constant throughout the universe um which act reliably to an end is exactly where we should go so i really like this example so, all right but, I'm, I, you I have to, to keep going you, you have know, to remember I, i'm italian and we tend to do two things we're very loud and we never shut up so just stop me when you have to well, well three things pronounce the word human as human you, you, <laughs> <laughs> okay three things it, it cued me and I, I lived in pennsylvania for about a year and my um my wife and her family are italian so, <laughs> so all right of, like there pennsylvania italians i've heard human before and uh ambulance that's an <laughs> for, for, right. uh, english speakers anyways <laughs> all right <laughs> so it's, going with the electric. no problem it's always important i think to have um an example or an image in our mind when we're doing these kinds of things so that's why I, i'm using the electron Hold on a second here. My phone just went off. All right. So imagine the electron moving towards the proton, right? To, to, to be, you know, it's attracted to it. And it's going to bond with it and make some kind of atom or something. All right. Now we can't explain the attraction of the electron to the proton uh, based on chance because what happens through chance doesn't happen very often. But anybody who designs uh, electrical circuits knows that, uh, or electri electricity in your house Electrons will flow across, uh, across that copper wire. Like in other words, they're always attracted to, you know, the negative is always attracted to the positive. It's not a matter of chance. It happens more than regularly. It happens because the pattern is out. So just cross that out. 
Uh, again, the electron exists well prior to biological evolution, so you can't say somehow through evolution it acquired it. We'll get into multiverse and panpsychism later on, so we can cross off biological evolution. Um, now, let me talk a little bit about the material aspect of the other. So let's get because now we're talking mental building blocks of reality, right? So the electron has, in some sense, a material aspect, right? Um, well, it can't somehow give to itself a natural inclination to be attracted to the proton, partly for three reasons. Partly because, A, it's not intelligent, so it can't deliberate about this and give it to itself. Number two, it can't cause its own being or nature because nothing is the cause of its own existence. For example, take me, right? I mean, I, I, I'm dependent in some sense on my parents because if they never meet, I would never. I can't cause my own existence because to act as a cause, I would already have to exist to cause my own existence. But if I already exist, then I don't need to cause my own existence. So there's no way that the electron can cause its own being or its own nature or its own natural inclination. So that's out. And also, whatever the electron is, you know, it either has to have that natural inclination to begin with or something else has to actualize it to acquire something new. But nothing can actualize itself because something can't give to itself what it doesn't have, right? Like in the winter, when my body is freezing, I can't somehow make my body warm. I have to go in front of an actually warm fire to actualize my cold hands and make them warm. So there's no way that the material aspect of the electron could, could give itself a new inclination. So that's out. Um, the last thing I want to discuss before I turn it over to you is that I want to be clear that Aquinas is not making a William Paley watchmaker kind of argument. There's a difference between intrinsic finality or an intrinsic final cause, if you will, or extrinsic um finality um i don't know if you want to weigh in on that or you want me to just keep rambling on <laughs> sure i'll jump in there um so on one side if you imagine all, all the way to the one side we have william paley who seems to think that um god impresses the the, the finality fully extrinsically right he's just um it's kind of like when we make something like when we make a watch and then on the absolute opposite side I might put somebody like Aristotle, though, if I'm not giving him a fair shake, then let me know, where he seems to think that the form being in the thing, well, that can do all of the work. We have intrinsic causality, like Aquinas, but we don't have a need for this type of intelligent direction. So it seems to be that Aquinas is running down the middle here and, um, and accepting that there is some type of direction, but that's concurrent with the, uh, with the cause of the of the actual substance in question. So it's God and the thing, because he's author of the nature in a similar way that he would, um, he would explain other types of causality. Well, you know, you brought up the whole Aristotle thing, which is an excellent point because, um, you know, as you just rightly said, a person could object that, well, Aristotle uh, believes, that, you know, natural for ends, but doesn't think God or any kind of God resembling a, a Christian God for that, I will handle that objection. Let me just say, um, let me just say why extrinsic finality is not the way um, to interpret Aquinas' fifth way. Now, 
I have to tell you, you know, I wish life was simple sometimes, you know, like I wish marriages could be happy all the time. No, maybe not. But <laughs> unfortunately, I've had several scholars who I know in one way or another really fight over the fifth way and the whole Paley interpretation. Right. So let me make what might be a little sound a little controversial. There's there's two points I want to make here. Point number one, it's more of a question. Can the principles that Aquinas talks about in the fifth way be used to make a Paley watchmaker argument? Yes. But the second question is, is Aquinas making a Paley watchmaker argument in the fifth way? And I think the answer to that question is no. So let me explain what I'm talking about here. It is true that when we see um, non-intelligent things ordered to an end, that we would infer, especially in technology, um, a human engineer or human intellect, right? Like, like, like a coffee maker is the easiest way, right? If you get a fancy schmancy coffee maker, the kind where you put the bean, whole beans in, it grinds it for you, it, uh, it does the whole thing, and you can even press some buttons on the thing, and it'll add milk and sugar for you. I mean, clearly, the plastic and the metal of the coffee maker uh, could never order itself to produce coffee with milk and sugar. It's the, those things are inanimate. Uh, they, they lack intelligence. Clearly, nobody, even the hardest atheist, would, would never object to saying that uh, clearly the coffee maker requires a human intelligent cause. I mean, that's just obvious. But, you know, that's not what Aquinas is doing because he's talking about the... He says in, in the fifth way, he talks about... Here, here's what he says. He says, For we see that things which lack intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end. So he's talking about the natural actions of things. But the plastic and the metal in the coffee maker they don't naturally make coffee. Metal just sits on the ground doing nothing, you know, waiting for elves and dwarves to mine it into mithril or something. <laughs> and uh, plastic, you know, it just, it just sits there. So um, Aquinas is not talking about extrinsic finality. He's not talking about some human or, you know, some intellect imposing on some already existing stuff a new kind of activity. Now, Aquinas gives the example of the arrow and the archer, and this can be confusing because he says, you know, the arrow is shot to its mark by its archer, right? He says, uh, so, so clear, clear is, you know, wood by their nature does not fly through the air and hit targets. That's not what it does. It, it grows in trees and just sits there. <laughs> um, so clearly the archer is imposing from outside something on the wood it's making the wood act in a way it would never act by nature by flying through the air and hitting a target but that's not what aquinas is talking about he's talking about the natural actions of things not things imposed on them so clearly this is not a paley watchmaker argument i don't know if that clarifies the point enough maybe i should expand on it but i'll let you weigh in yeah i, I think that's an important clarification because oftentimes I'm, I'm a convert so i came from the protestant world where Paley watchmaker analogies are very popular and where there's a strong intelligent design um, bend there, which does kind of take for granted that we're speaking of extrinsic causality. So, yes, I think that's very important. Um, you mentioned Dawkins. Dawkins likes to do um, uh, his little parodies of the five ways, and I think that he, he targets this one as just another type of intelligent design where he might think that this is about complication. However, in your example of the electron, 
it's exactly the opposite. You pick something which is very simple, fundamental, and is ordered towards a, a single determinate end with reliability. So this is very different. This is not about complexity. I would say if, if I could put one thing to kind of differentiate that, well, I'd put two instead. <laughs> one, it's intrinsic versus ex extrinsic. And it's about this, as you put it, uh, natural inclination, not about the presence of complexity. Right. Very good. And actually, you, you inspired me to think of another point because this stuff, it's, it's very complicated. You know, the, the five ways have these ontological, I mean, these metaphysical that I'm using ontological in that sense. These metaphysical arguments have so many layers to them. For example, another pitfall in understanding um, the fifth way and even understanding intrinsic finality. Some people might say, well, you know, if the, uh, if the electron has within its own being a natural inclination towards the proton, well, then we don't need God because it already has it and, and, and that's out. But actually, and I'll explain why we have to do it this way. There's actually two levels of causality that are simultaneous. So let me describe levels of causality. Um, I mean, one way would be, uh, and, I, and this was an example from John Hart that he made at Oxford when I was out there for a conference. Um, you know, if, if you see uh, a tea kettle on the stove and... Um, it's whistling because the, the water is boiling. You might ask, well, why is the water boiling? Well, on the physical level of causality, there, there, there's heat being applied to the tea kettle, and it's having all sorts of thermal reactions, which results in the boiling. But that's only on the physical level of causality. If you, if you really press, well, why is the water boiling? The person who put the tea kettle on the flame will say, well, I want tea, right? So that's the intellectual level of causality, right? And they both exist uh, at the same time time in a sense and they're both uh, compatible with each other they're not in uh, competition they both peacefully coexist right and that's what's going on with the electron clearly aquinas would say if he knew about electrons the electron has within it a natural inclination to be attracted to that proton it's within the thing this is how the electron is living its little life if you will i'm using life metaphorically it's in its nature to be attracted to electrons but as I just argued earlier, it couldn't give itself that natural inclination. Why? Because it has no knowledge. It has no intelligence. Chance won't explain it. Biological evolution won't explain it because that comes much later. So it has something that it couldn't give itself, and, and it has to come from somewhere. And Aquinas' point is there's a second level of causality. This is God's intelligence in, des in, in designing the world. Well, design is a crazy word, but in making the world or creating the world, God not only gives existence to things, he gives them natures and ways of operating so that they all kind of work together in this huge symphony to eventually produce life, I would say. So there's always these two levels of causality. I don't know if that helps explain why uh, the electron by itself is not sufficient, but I tried. <laughs> yeah, I think that's important because some people think that, well, this is just what, what, what a God of the gaps, that we're missing something to explain reality, therefore God. But I think what you're saying is, no, they're not necessarily in competition. The idea that the tea is boiling because of a, uh, a chain of causality from the stove to the pot to the water. No, that's, that's perfectly compatible with saying that there's such thing as intention. And there's the intention of the tea drinker. And that's also a level of causality. So, yeah, I would just caution people to, to not think of this as a god of the gaps. Right. In fact, all of the five ways show that creatures 
well, first of all, they observe creatures doing something. Like the first way we, we watch things change in the world, whether it's the uh, leaves changing in autumn or the snow falling in winter, right? There's change in the world. And the third way we observe that things exist, but they have a kind of contingent or possible existence, right? They fade away. They, I didn't always exist. I was born in a certain year and so forth. And what we find is in order for these things that we observe to be possible, in other words, to explain how they could happen, God has to be there. And what ultimately happens is that all of these things possess something that they couldn't have give themse given themselves. In the case of the first way, it, it's, it's a prime actuality, which allows them to act. And in the case of the third way, um, they can't give existence to themselves, but a, a being that has existence necessarily through itself in a self-sufficient way, God, the uncaused cause, can give them being. So there's always those two levels of, of, of causality in, in that sense. And, and it's not a God of the gaps because since nothing can give itself existence, we do need to look outside the creature for how it got existence. I'm so, so I'm just trying to give a taste. Like you, you mentioned God of the gaps, and I thought that's an excellent point. I'm trying to give a taste how, yeah, we're not committing that logical fallacy here. There's a there's a deep necessity on why God is needed to explain what we observe in these cases. A, a couple of years ago, I did a, a talk on uh, the life and philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, and it was when I was just um, converting to the faith, and um, I had to go through the five ways and figure them all out. The fourth gave me the most trouble, though it oh, has yeah. become <laughs> my favorite. I realized I've explained it not once, not twice, but five times on this podcast. I have three separate episodes. Wow. Five, two different explanations. I love the fourth way. It's become my favorite. But okay. the fifth one gave me a lot of trouble, too. And the best way that I could come up with an analogy for it, and I'll run it by you, and, and you could comment or tell me, wow, you really botched that one, Jake. <laughs> uh, <Go laughs> what I said was, all right, imagine that we have a bunch of scientists over in CERN Laboratory, and they're just sitting around, you know, wasting government dollars as one does. Uh, maybe they're on their lunch break, and they have all of their, um, their, their equipment trained on this one spot. And then, as luck would have it, a, some type of portal or wormhole opens up, and just this stuff comes out, just explodes out of the wormhole, and they watch as um, electromagnetism uh, links a few things together. Uh, gravity causes a few parts to fall into place. Uh, we see all the laws of physics, uh, as we call them, uh, operating. And at the end, there's a, uh, there's a, a Doctor Who-style Cyberman who can walk <laughs> and talk and explore the universe and greets the scientists. Hello. He seemingly can, can intend different actions. Um, you know, he talks with the ridiculous um, uh, Doctor Who voice, all of the things we would expect out of a <laughs> Cyberman. Um, so we see this this guy and uh, one of the scientists uh, pipes up and goes, well, well, I mean, there's nothing really to see here, guys. I mean, let's be honest. We had our 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 stuff trained on this. We we watched that there was nothing that broke the laws of physics. So if we want to explain why he's here, it's obvious his head was uh, the group of matter on top and that fused into his neck. And, th and then we saw that there was a little bit of a, a fusion reaction, which uh, supplied the energy to hook his arms on. Everything's explained. We, we can tie this up into a nice little bow. It was really cool. We had all of our, our equipment trained on this. We can tell the entire causal story. Nothing to see here. But wouldn't you imagine some of the other scientists would respond? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This stuff could have been anything, right? It just came out in this goo it just burst out of this wormhole and yet it became this therefore it seems to have had a potential to be this and not that from the beginning and then it 
we know this for a fact because here's the Cyberman now. So although it didn't break any of these laws of physics, although we do have a, a, a tight little uh, a efficient causal chain that doesn't negate the fact that there must have been something which caused it to have this direction and not that. Wouldn't that imply if this and not something else was sent through the porthole, the portal, that uh, there could be an intelligence on the other side? Wouldn't that be a reasonable implication? And it doesn't seem that this causal chain in any way assaults that strong intuition. Actually, it's interesting with the portal analogy. I, I wasn't sure if you meant that the portal is just from another part of our universe or, or it could be from a different universe. Were you going left, from... left completely um, un unspecified. Oh, okay, I see. <laughs> um, at, at very least, we just have something that just bursts into existence. And then at the end of a long process, we find that it has these human-like features. So it's an analogy with our universe that we can walk, talk, intend, uh, do scientific discoveries. That means there must have been from the beginning a potential which allowed this to be actualized. It couldn't have done that itself because it itself came into being therefore whatever set that potential from the beginning had to come from the other side no i i think i think that's a decent way of putting it forgive me in that i haven't really when i think of the cybermen though i immediately think of um you know human writers because they're fiction but i get your point here though um yeah you know what you're, what you're saying sort of reminds me of famous uh, physicist freeman dyson he once said uh and this is a quotation i think you like this Quote, the more I examine the universe and study the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known that we were coming, end quote. So I think, I think what, if I'm interpreting you correctly, I think what you're trying to say is that um, to have these amazing Cybermen and these amazing things coming out of the portal, you know, if you trace it back, there was only primitive stuff in the universe. And there has to be the right kind of primitive stuff with the right kind of essences and interconnections for those Cybermen to be possible. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, the idea that the potential had to, to, to exist prior to whatever is actual and that the potential has a future orientation. Therefore, we can kind of run the basic fifth way idea of, well, it can't intend a future by itself. Therefore, something else had to um, do the future orientation. So it can't be it. It must be something else. The only thing that can orient something towards a future actual state, like Cybermen or people or whatever you want to put in the example, is a mind. But this mind pre-existed the beginning of the universe or anything else, right? Um, this is something which has to be at the beginning in order for anything to uh, move towards an end. Things do move towards an end. Therefore, we have this kind of mind. Well, I think what you're hitting on is, is probably <clears throat> the key insight that Aquinas has in the background of his fifth way. He doesn't exactly put it as I'm going to say it now, but I think the insight goes like this. Um, you know, only a mind can envision a, a, a future that doesn't exist yet and then act to um, make that future happen, whereas like a stone can't envision anything and so it can't uh order things to an end or even establish its own natural inclinations it's just stuck a stone in the here and now right but intelligence allows you to uh think about things that don't exist yet on the in intellectual level and then you can act to realize them and in fact if you think about it <clears throat> that's how final causation works there was a famous quote in the middle ages i don't remember the exact wording but it goes something like this like the final cause is first 
um, in intention and last in execution. So if I want to build a house, first I have to think about, well, what kind of house do I want? Do I want a Victorian house? Do I want a house that looks like a castle? Do I want something else? Only then, once some choices are made and I think about what I want, can I realize it with the architect right? and then actually build it physically. So, so yeah, I, I think you have a good point there that some the things to come, like the Cybermen, have to be there in the beginning. Otherwise, you know, we'll, we'll never get it. And, and, and the, I thought of an analogy last night. Tell me if this is bad. This might be bad. I might not know, but I'll, I'll try. Well, no, I, it's I, bad. No, I'm kidding. Ah, <laughs> it's fine. Um, imagine if I was some billionaire, you know, I made Elon Musk look like he has no money. I just have just gobs of money and I fly you out to my island country. I, you know, you, I have a dream of buying an island and having Delfino's country. So everybody will leave me alone. And there's no taxation on my island. Anyway. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, I know. You got to come. <laughs> so, yeah, I have an escort if I need to set up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right everybody incorporate <laughs> so i i fly you out to my island and i put you in a room you know I, I, everything's you know legit I, I give you a nice meal there's no trickery i put you in a room uh with wood chips you know like some tree has been cut down into wood chips and there's nothing in the room except you know floor ceiling bare walls and these wood chips and i say i will give you a billion dollars and you can take a month if you need and i'll give you food so that you won't starve I'll give you a billion dollars if you can take these wood chips and turn them into a fully functioning laptop computer. Do you think you'd be able to do that? No way. No way. I don't think so. Why not? I mean, if I'm to speak, it's just like uh, uh, my first thing is, well, there's just simply not the elements there. I mean, there's, there's carbon, maybe some nitrogen, some oxygen, some this and that. Like, I don't have those elements. I, I would have to fuse them into different atoms in order to have silicone. I don't have the, the things in the periodic table of elements. And further, I don't have the, the causal powers to transmute one element into another right, or, right. or even the knowledge of how to do so. Well, I use the wood. No, that's good. I use the wood chips because obviously wood by itself doesn't conduct electricity. And if you want, you know, circuits in a laptop, you need something to conduct electricity. Wood is not going to do it. And, you know, RAM memory chips, there are only certain elements in the world that you can make them out of. I think the most common is silicon, I believe, but germanium also works. The idea is that the atomic structure is such uh, on silicon that um, it's almost like there's a grid of electrons and you can shift one to another in like a RAM chip. So it's either a one or a zero and then you can write everything down in binary. Make a long story short, you know, if I had given you copper wire and silicon tabs and i gave you a lot of other things you probably could make the laptop computer maybe with a little help from an engineer but with just wood chips it's never going to happen so i guess what i want to say is i think atheist objections are missing the whole point it's not a matter of probability if the unit first of all we have to explain why anything exists at all before the universe can unfold in some kind of big bang and, and evolution ever happened you know billions of years down the road if all you have is wood chips, you're not going to get anything. And if all you have in the universe is electrons and nothing else, you're not going to get anything. So it's not a matter of probability. It's like you said earlier, if you don't start off with the right stuff, you're never going to be able to realize certain things. And our universe, and this is where science can help philosophy. They can, I think it could be a nice cooperative project. Our universe, the physicists have discovered that there are so many things about it that have to be just right for life to happen. I mean, if gravity is a little too strong, you don't get a, a real 
you don't get a nice expansion of the Big Bang. It just collapses back very quickly. Planets never form, and there's no life. If gravity is too, just a little bit too weak, you know, the, the pl uh, matter won't clump together to form planets, and then you're not going to get life in outer space. It's, it's, you know, it's vacuum. It's cold. It's dead. Um, and that's just one thing. You know, the, the strengths of the strong and weak forces in the atom have to be just right. Um, and one of the my favorite of these, uh, you know, fine tuning uh, dependencies is antimatter and, and matter. It sounds like a Star Trek episode, but this is true. Um, for every billion and one quarks in the universe, it turns out there was a billion antiquarks. Now, the billion quarks and the billion antiquarks, they annihilate each other, not in the metaphysical sense of annihilation, like uncreating them, but they, uh, they, they destroy each other and just release energy. So get this. Uh, there were a billion and one quarks and then a billion antiquarks out there. You know, for each, uh, if, you were, if you had like a shovel and you just shoveled out quarks, you'd find that there's a ratio of a billion and one to a billion. So that means that the billions canceled each other out, but there was that one extra quark that wasn't killed by an antiquark. And all of the matter you see in the physical universe is this little excess over and over, <laughs> these extra little... And without that, you wouldn't have any planets or any life. I guess what I'm trying to say is there are so many things that have to be there with the right natures and constitutions, with the right inclinations, so that 10 billion years later, life in you know simpler, simple cellular life will emerge, and then eventually us, that there's just no way in an atheistic universe where there is no intelligence in the beginning, right? That evolves like <laughs> billions of years later. There's just no way. Now, you could say, well... Well, maybe it just the universe always existed and it always had these natures, right? So there is no rational explanation for it because there's no um, cosmic reason at its root. It's just an absurd universe that's gratuitously awesome because it made us. All right. I mean, if you want to believe that, I can't stop you. I mean, maybe you also believe Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, but it's <laughs> absurd. <laughs> it just doesn't work, it seems to me. All right, I've said enough. You can comment. <laughs> right. You know, I kind of want to circle back a little bit about the multiverse thing. I kind of hinted at the idea. Oh, yes, of, the multiverse. Well, 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 couldn't there be, um, couldn't this be by chance? It's like, well, hang on. Initially, I think that can seem plausible. However, um, I don't think we could, we could reasonably expect a universe with this level of reliability. I mean, you mentioned things which have to be in place, and that's its own fine-tuning argument. But I would almost argue from things that don't have to be in place. For instance, that electron of yours, I think a life probably could have evolved and everything could have been just fine with um, one out of 10,000 electrons going AWOL, right? But we find 100% reliability. Or when we find all of these other natural processes that are 100% acting according to their nature, well, come on, we could have had a near infinite number of almost identical universes with just one or two non-deterious um, um, deviations from the norm. But we find so few of those. I think that strong argument um, towards the idea that this isn't chance and it is according to um, intrinsic um, final causality. Right. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not even really a matter of chance because if all you have is wood chips, you know, the probability of making the laptop is zero. Like in other words, it's not even a matter of probability. I, let me try another analogy. You know, this is what the deeper we get in philosophy, the more difficult it gets. And I struggle with this too. So for example, 
you know, if I have a, a six-sided dice or one one die, that's the singular, right? Um, well, if you want to calculate the probability of, of which side it'll land on, right? It's it's well, it's six-sided, so it's got a one in six chance of landing on you know one of the sides. However, to even calculate that probability, there are deeper properties that have to be there. Like in other words, I have to tell you, is it a six-sided dice? Are we playing Dungeons and Dragons? Is it a four-sided dice or a 30-sided dice? Right? You need to know the geometry of the dice and also the strength of gravity and the force you're throwing it with and what you're throwing it at, a wall and what angle, to have some idea of calculating the property uh, um, probability of you know which side it's gonna land on. Well. You know, you the universe has to exist because if it doesn't exist at all, well, then there's probability is not even an issue about uh, things you know, evolving because if nothing exists, nothing can evolve. And then not only does it have to exist, it has to exist with the right furniture, if you will, uh, so that other things can happen. And that's all at the beginning before you can calculate any probabilities. And if you don't have that stuff at the beginning, it's not a matter of probability. It's just impossible. I don't know if that helps, but... I, I think so. And in the Thomistic conception, we have this idea of the form, which you've alluded to earlier a number of times. Um, but I, I have a question for you. We also have um, the concept of prime matter, that which the, the form informs. So we lay out this argument, and it seems to me that it's arguing um, about final causality. It relates to the idea that these things have forms which uh, have determinate ends of some sort. But does this argument, in, in your opinion, arrive at God being also the cause of prime matter? Oh, yeah. In fact, okay. no, no, this is this is good. Um, unfortunately, this is where <laughs> the five ways by themselves are inadequate. Um, you know, it's very interesting. And, and this is related to your point. In the Summa Theologiae, after Aquinas gives the five ways, his, the next um, question is question three of the Summa Theologiae, first part is uh, the, about the simplicity of God, and it has, I think, eight articles. And in there, he argues that God does not have a physical body, so there's no matter in God whatsoever, including no prime matter. He argues that there's no distinction between matter and form, there's no distinction between genius and species in God, there's no distinction between essence and existence. And what he's trying to argue for, and he'll continue doing this, is that God is purely simple. And this is, of course, something difficult for humans to grasp. God is not some kind of essence like a giraffe or an alligator that has existence and can lose it. No, God has no essence limiting his being. He's being in all of its purity and infinite fullness, which is probably why you like the fourth way, because he arrives at that there, too. Um, and eventually, he argues that there can only be one reality that is the fullness of being or pure being there can't be more than one and that means that everything else that exists uh whether it's uh the frog over there or the electron or even if you want to toss in prime matter um has to be given existence there can only be one thing that is pure being or existence itself and everything else must be caused put it another way i hate to whip out the real distinction phrase but <laughs> if there's only one reality where the essence and existence can be identical, and that would be God, that means in everything else that exists, essence and existence are non-identical or really distinct. And so what this means is that everything besides God must be created. He must give them being. So prime matter is never going to work. It's, it's, um, it's going to have to be created by God. And in fact, the idea of these multiverses, uh, well... 
<laughs> they also can't be self-sufficient. First of all, they, there's only one reality that uh, doesn't need a cause of ex its existence. That's God. So if you have multiple universes, that's already a problem. Plus, these multiverses are composed of composite things, right? Whether it's a singularity that has the potential to expand in a big bang, right? Actuality and potentiality. That's a kind of composition, so it needs a cause. Or whether it's a quantum vacuum field that is it's also a mixture of actuality and potentiality because it can fluctuate and spit out electrons or protons, right? Um, it, what, what Aquinas ultimately argues for is that there can be only one reality that is completely uncaused, that it's being in all of its purity. And so there's no way a multiverse could ever get rid of that existential need for a God. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the multiverse comes up so often. I actually hate dealing with it. because it, <laughs> if, I'm like, you've just multiplied your problems. You're like, right. fine. How about I run away a few feet and you have to come and make your argument a few steps further. It's like, oh, okay. But unfortunately, it seems to be a way that many think they can wiggle out of these arguments. I think you bring up a good point that um, it sounds like what you're referencing is the Dante reasoning. And uh, I always think like a lot of the five ways, particularly this one, it seems like somebody walks up and says, all right, I'm going to use this complicated karate move. And what it turns into is it's like, well, when, it, it, once you get kind of in contact, it just turns into the, the Dante headlock. Like, <laughs> That's good. It's like it starts out with all these different complicated things. It's like at the end of the day, it's the Dante headlock. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> let me just say a few more things about the multiverse. So you're right. It, it, on the existential level, you know, why do all these billions of universes the multiverse why do they exist it pushes the existential question back you know like now we have to account for not just one universe but you know billions or infinite or whatever but there's also another problem you know a multiverse by itself is not enough if they're all identical that's no good you need some kind of powerful principle that will randomly generate them so they're all a little different right where right does, where does that come from <laughs> seems that's, like a bigger problem yeah. well yeah i mean now how do we explain that so i think it's really not going to work. Now, Aristotle, you mentioned, now this is very interesting. Aristotle clearly uh, believes in final causality, right? He thinks things act for an end, and there's, and he thinks, uh, he says things like, you know, nature always acts for the good, right? Like, in other words, we have enough rain so that we don't all starve to death through famine and stuff like that. Okay, so clearly there are things acting for ends, um, but he doesn't believe in a creator God, right? His God is just this, this beautiful perfect mind that in some way all of all of reality is striving towards and that's why the planets are revolving around it or seeking in something like that the reason why i think aristotle's view is deficient and aquinas's is better is because aristotle in principle cannot ever really explain why things have these uh, intrinsic natural inclinations or this intrinsic finality for him, the universe was not created. He believed it always existed and always will be. So, you know, there's just things with these intrinsic principles and there's no way to explain them rationally. And the reason is he doesn't have a notion of creation ex nihilo or, or you know, God br bringing forth things into being from no prior stuff. But Aquinas actually has a philosophical argument why creation is necessary. I touched on it briefly a few moments ago but if you want me to flesh it out a little more i can so it sounds like what you're saying is uh, um, aristotle might see 
the existence of natures, and I guess you would share this with Plato, that the idea that there are these natures that things can participate in or instantiate as kind of a brute fact. They just always were. Things happen to become um, basketballs and, and sea lions and, and ice cream cones it, it, just because those were always possibilities. And there isn't a, a reason past that. Is, is that how we would put it? Well, I, the thing is, he thinks of Aristotle thinks of God as, as this perfect mind. It's, it, it's, it's um, you know, the, the first unmoved mover. And he says a perfect mind only thinks about itself. So it's not thinking about you or I. Right. And it's not a creator God. The universe always existed. So this mind didn't create it at best. And he doesn't talk this way, but at best, maybe it could like in a paley watchmaker kind of way, maybe influence the world through being so attractive that the world loves it in some sense, but it can't give things their being in nature's because it's not a creator God. You know, it doesn't create things from nothing uh, as in the Catholic tradition. Right. So, so in that sense, he, he can't explain why they have these, these natural inclinations or why they're there. It's just, he has to stop and say, well, there is no reason. So it's almost a semi-absurd universe. See, Aquinas can take the best of Aristotle but say, no, 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 it's not a semi-absurd um, universe. Nothing would exist if God didn't create it. And because he's intelligent, he can give them not only their very being, but also their natures and modes of functioning according to his divine wisdom, which Aristotle can't make that chess move. I think that, yeah, I think that's a very, very important point. I appreciate that. So to kind of, I don't know, clarify or go into that a little bit, um, do you think that we need to go into the Dante reasoning in order to secure um, God from this argument? Um, and I, I ask that because um, you can imagine someone reads this and says, well, Aquinas already accepts that there's an intelligent governor of nature. He identifies angels as having a governance role in nature. They um, relate to material creation, to, to guide, to do who knows what else. Um, isn't this actually an argument for angels? Does this argument by itself, without buttressing it with the Dante or, or say, the first way or something, um, does this by itself get us to God and not just angels? It's a very good question. So I wish I had a quick, short, succinct answer, but let me, let me answer in two parts. So the first part of your question is about this Deante reasoning. And so that's, you know, Deante, On Being in Essence is a book Aquinas wrote, and Deante is the On Being part. Um, but actually, the way I'm thinking, and he, he does talk about existential insights in Deante, but I'm thinking more of the third way, which obviously we're talking about the fifth way today. But, you know, the third way is that we, we notice that there are possible beings in the world, things that don't always exist, and how can we explain their existence? And ultimately, that way argues that there has to be something that has existence necessarily, and not necessarily through another, or it's not dependent on anything. It has to be, it has to have existence necessarily through itself. It's completely self-sufficient. Now, I think that's going to come into this story. Now, you asked whether or not angels are good enough for the fifth way. Now, the way he gives it in that one paragraph in the beginning of the um, Summa Theologiae, he doesn't there argue that this intelligence that there's only one of them. So you're right. Prima facie, or on the face of it, it, it doesn't seem like this is an adequate argument. Now, interestingly, if you, he wrote a little uh, expositio, an explanation of the Apostles' Creed, Aquinas did, and in there, he does add to the fifth way 
uh, he uses it and adds to it the following. Let me read it to you. It's very short. He's, this is what he says in his uh, explanation of the Apostles' Creed. Quote, We believe that God who rules and regulates all things is but one God. This is seen in that when, wherever the regulation of human affairs is well arranged, there the group is found to be ruled and, and provided for by one, not many. For a number of heads often brings dissension in their subjects. But since divine government exceeds in every way that which is merely human, it is evident that the government of the world is not by many gods, but by one only, end quote. Now, I have to tell you, look, Aquinas is, a, is great, and I'm not, I'm not that impressed with this argument. Before I tell you why, what do you think of that argument? It, it, I, it just, I, I couldn't pick out exactly why it doesn't strike me as convincing, but it seems, if any, it seems to just be an inductive argument. Like, wouldn't you imagine that if we have this type of order, it would be from one order and not many? It's like, well, I... I mean, in a in a way, I could see that, but I would be hesitant to take that intuition and um, use it to inform all of my metaphysics or arrive all the way to God. Um, maybe I could make an argument that that's more plausible from a um, oh, what's what's his name, Occam's Razor kind of kind of thing that that less um, explanatory pieces are are more likely because there's less to fail. Right. Um, but yeah, that's about it. That's about yeah, it, 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 I agree with you. It doesn't really strike me as, um, you know, very, it doesn't have a kind of force that hits you. And you're right. In some sense, it almost appears inductive, right? Like it's kind of a sophisticated version of too many chefs, you know, ruin the soup or something like that. Um, but, you know, there are cases, I can't remember what fantasy novel series this is, but there was a fantasy novel series that was written by one guy who unfortunately died and had to be finished by another author. I can get that for you at a later date. And apparently this, the second author did a really good job of wrapping up the series. The fans were really happy and he worked really hard on it and he knew the other author. So sometimes two uh, causes that are compatible can produce something well, right? Um, so there's that. But here's what I would say. I would say that we really need to understand that Aquinas' argument for God is not just like one of the five ways. He takes all of them and then he understands them in light of his existential insights. He does this, for example, in question three of the Summa. Right after the five ways, he explains how, um, and this is, uh, was it question three, article four of the Summa Theologiae, first part. Aquinas explains how the first way, the third way, and the fourth way all arrive at something that's being itself. So, for example, he says that, uh, you know, the first way, the uncaused cause that, you know, the unmoved mover that changes other things, he goes, well, it's pure actuality. And he goes, you know, nothing is actual if it doesn't exist. So it has to be pure existing or pure being, you know, however you want to put it. And then, you know, he talks about how the necessary being per se, uh, you know, necessary through itself of the third way, he goes, well, that has to also be pure being. Why? Because, well, <clears throat> if there was a real distinction between its essence and existence, it would need a cause. But that makes no sense because... The necessary uh, through itself being explains why anything exists. So it can't have a cause. It has to be pure being. And then the fourth way, you know, he gets there too. So what I'm trying to tell you is he, the he's, he's, he's really too nice, St. Thomas Aquinas. He's too charitable. He <laughs> lists these five ways which have roots in Aristotle and other people, and they're all imperfect. But what he really does is 
what he's really i think what he's really saying is that these people tried and, and were somewhat successful in getting of god but what in the next summa with you know principles of existence and essence and and things i'm you know i just laid out that really it all points to one being that's uncaused that's pure being itself ipsum essay subsistence right um, being itself subsisting and then he argues and he does this you know that there can only be one reality where existence and essence are identical and that means there can be only one primal intelligence that could bring forth all things so in other words there can't be this choir of angels that are giving being and natural inclinations to things because they don't have the power to create they're also beings dependent on god they were created so if aquinas is right that you know all of these five ways plus his other existential arguments after the five ways point to only one reality that could be responsible for the existence of all things well then there can't be multiple intelligences at the root of the universe that's about the best way i could put it in a short way <laughs> gotcha i appreciate that um how are you doing on time over there dr delfino oh i'm all right okay well i'll tell you what let's um let's see if we can hit one more uh question objection kind of thing i i hope it's gonna illuminate some confusion for people not illuminate the confusion do the opposite of that that wouldn't make sense all right um so it seems that if we're operating on an a theory of time there's a bit of a puzzle as to what do we mean by imagining the future um in order to have real knowledge of the future well we're told that that knowledge has to relate to something that is there has to be a truth maker so what exactly are we envisioning or do we require an eternal being in order to truly with a truth maker um, imagine a future and so direct um, so, so that's kind of the the one side so if it's an a theory um, kind of help us understand what does it mean to imagine the future such that there can be directedness and if it's not an a theory so if we're operating in a b theory well then we have another puzzle and that seems to be well, um, what do we mean that something's moving to an end since just that thing that's in question simply is the three dimensions plus the fourth of time? So it's in a sense static and time is not a, a, a real feature like, like, like in the A theory it would be. So how do we deal with, with those two sides and which do you think Aquinas would accept? Wow. Okay. That is some question. <laughs> <laughs> be like, okay. Nearing the end of the interview. Yeah, right. No, that's fine. No, no. I, I, I like when, when uh, things are, are like... We're ending the, with on, a bang. No, no. Well, the, 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 this is difficult stuff on the edge of my thinking, so it's always fun to explore these things with someone. Um, Okay, let me make a few comments here. It seems to me that this objection is saying something like this. Well, in order for uh, the final cause to be in the mind of the intelligent cause, the future, in some sense, already has to exist so that the intelligent cause can order things towards it. But based on these A theories of time, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Or, or one of these theories of time doesn't seem to be the case. And therefore, this whole view doesn't make any sense. Is that sort of where you're going? Exactly. Yes. Okay. First of all, let me tell the audience, all this A and B theory of time, which are the worst names in philosophy, they're so blah, vanilla and boring, comes <laughs> from uh, analytic philosopher McTaggart. <laughs> mctaggart yes mctaggart I, I don't know if he was scottish or british i don't know anyway uh <laughs> i liked your, your your you're not scottish are you 
I, I am I according to whatever company that is with 23 ancestry.com. Oh, okay. 23 percent Scottish. There just enough go. to say McTaggart. Oh, uh, if I would have known that, I wouldn't have done this interview. Never argue with a Scotsman. <laughs> oh my lord. All right. So first let me say before we dive into this A and B and really make everybody hit the snooze button, um, I don't think God is affected by this. Meaning you know, the objection is that if the future doesn't exist yet, God can't know it. But I don't think that works. First of all, God's not in time. You know, in the Aristotelian Thomistic tra tradition, time is, for lack of a better analogy, a byproduct of change. So there's before I have the haircut and then after I have the haircut, right? So if there's no change in the universe, time will have effectively, there would be no time. So God exists, again, this is a, almost metaphorically, but he, in a, he exists in a realm where there is no time. And I don't even like the word realm. The idea is that God never changes, right? He uh, has no potentiality. He's pure actuality. So he's always the self-same forever, if, if, you know, eternally is the better way to put it. He's outside of time. So he doesn't have to worry about time not existing because actually the future world is just a dim reflection of him and he already knows himself so this subjection kind of doesn't even have force now did that make any sense i think so and, and it sounds like heck of anything this could um answer a bit of the angel objection earlier that maybe an angel because it is placed in in time in a way that god is not would not be able to do this directing and only this type of eternal being could do the directing right. things seem to be directed because they move towards things reliably Ergo, we have an eternal cause, which does the directing. All right. Well, that worked out better than I thought. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if you like, I'll uh, read um, the uh, patented Delfino translation of the fifth way once more. So that people had it at the top and have it at, after we've done a lot of explanation. And uh, then we'll wrap it on up. How's well, that sound? Well, actually, let me just say just two well not two words but very briefly something about panpsychism and then let's do oh yes all right okay. i won't stop you from panpsychism so i think this is actually an objection which people don't give enough credit to and pops it's it's a little panpsychism head all over the place so well please, I, no, I wish I you hadn't said that me. because i have to confess and be honest i'm not an expert on panpsychism but i'm going to give two arguments i think thomas might have given had he uh attended this talk here today <laughs> so panpsychism as i understand it is that uh everything in the universe uh whether it's an electron or uh you know a stone in some sense has some kind of consciousness or intelligence is that about right um i think that, I, I think yes however i've also heard versions which seem to be a little bit more modest and say um um, you, you know, for instance, where is our soul in our body? Aquinas says, well, it is wholly present in each part of the body. And then that's part of the reason why we have these internal processes. It's because of us as a whole, our form, our soul present in all of these areas. So they might say that there's a, uh, a soul that's fused in, which has a mind, um, not just to one body like me or you, but to the universe as a body, as a whole, such that it's this soul that in every place directs things towards their end um, because that soul was present everywhere in the universe in a, in a similar way to us in our bodies. Wait, does that mean there could, there could possibly be only one world soul for everything? 
yes. However, um, I mean, th- there's different different formats. I'm kind of presenting the one which I think is the the most interesting. Right. Um, it doesn't necessarily deny that there are other um, substances, but it might take a similar to Aristotelian idea that they exist virtually. For instance, I would say that a liver is a thing. It, it could be a substance. It's certainly created of other substances, water, um, and such like, and they act according to their nature. But that's all underneath the overall governance of a soul. So they might offer a similar analogy that the Robert Delfino electron moves according to its electronness, but as governed according to the whole, which is the soul uh, joined with the universe um, writ large. Well, actually, if it's if there's a world soul, which is kind of like a Neoplatonic idea, Plotinus talks about that. Well, then basically now it's really just like an imminent God or something, right? If it's moving, yeah, I mean, it's moving I think, all things. Right. So that wouldn't yeah. be uh, necessarily an atheistic argument. It might be a challenge to Christianity. Yeah, it uh, kind of bridges the, it, it seems, it, sometimes it sounds like naturalism, but weird. And other times it sounds like theism, but weird. Um, and I know people have different ideas about what it's, what it would be intelligent um in that would it be everything would it be um only the thing at the top level i have no idea (laughs) well let's take the world soul idea first as you've laid it out um that would seem to me to be a kind of paley watchmaker argument right because the world soul is um i mean unless we say this world soul is also a creator like the christian notion of god which i don't think they're saying then really what it has is the world soul can only influence things like a watchmaker influences the parts of a watch right I, I think so. I'm going to have to think about that. Yeah, uh, I, I think that would be a watchmaker argument. Um, and the other thing I would say is, um, let's go. Oh, well, did you want to comment further? Or... Um, sure. I mean, just what popped into my head there. Um, it seems that whatever this would be that we just kind of sketched out, whatever form of panpsychism, um, if that is ordered to an end, then it seems to fall right in line with the rest of the fifth way that we'd have to look at something which gave it the nature of being a universal. And if it doesn't um, contain within its nature, the reason for its own um, existence if it, if it doesn't have those qualities of classical theism, it reaches outside of itself. So yes. It very like good. That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say that if the world soul is part of the physical universe, then it enters into composition with the physical universe and in some sense is dependent on it, which means it can't be a primary uncaused cause, which is what you sort of were saying. It points outside of itself, right? Yeah, sure. That's what I was saying. Yeah. That's right. So actually you demolished it. Good job there. Oh, now, oh my goodness. All right. <laughs> now let's, t- let's take, like, so you did um, the version we just talked about with panpsychism seems to be that there's one world soul. That's like one end of the spectrum. The other would, thing would be like, there's, there's billions of little intelligences, right? Every electron, every thing. Uh, mini souls, yes. Yeah, mini souls yeah. or something right. like that. So there I would say I have two arguments against that. One you already know, but we'll, we'll get to it in a second. But um, I don't think that would do justice to the kind of unity that we feel. Like, for example, you know, you're Jake, I'm, I'm Robert. Um, in our lives, I mean, granted, our bodies does some things for us that we're not really in control of. Like, you know, right now our hearts are beating and we're not telling it to do that. You know, our nervous system just regulates all that for us. But in our lives, uh, we have a real kind of unity, right? Like if we paint a painting, it's us doing it. Or if we write a, a letter, you know, it's one, that seems to be better explained by one cause than every electron in my body, um, 
sort of having input on this letter that I'm writing. You know what I'm saying? That would be like what billions of electrons with, with consciousness. It'd be, it would be like a loud chorus, a cacophony of noise. I don't know how anything would get done if, if that's a, what like a competing swarm of voices. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. So I think it doesn't really help the unity. Now that has, I think a moderate strength, that argument, but the real one is the one we said earlier. Um, all of these little, um, you know, little souls, little, little, little conscious entities in the universe, and they would be trillions and billions and gazillions of them. Well, they really can't be uncaused insofar as there's composition between their material nature and their conscious soul nature or whatever you want to call it, right? There's some kind of distinction there. And um, so the problem is they would be dependent on an uncaused cause, and Aquinas effectively argues the only thing that makes sense as a truly uncaused cause is something where essence and existence are identical and you don't get that in electrons protons or any of these other panpsychic beings so they're not going to be uh adequate as to explain their own consciousness if you will i think that makes sense so is there anything else that you would want the listeners to know about the fifth way no but just to take a break and have a beer after this <laughs> <laughs> man it's a, it's a little early for me so no i'm kidding well who knows when they're going to be listening to this <laughs> no that's a very good point i, I recommend waiting till till five o'clock sitting back enjoying a delicious beer there you and go. a delicious podcast at that um well cool well let me read the uh, fifth way one t- one more time with with all of this stuff uh, loaded into our minds all right the fifth way is taken from the governance of the world We see that things which lack intelligence, such as natural bodies, act for an end. And this is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way so as to obtain the best result. From this, it's obvious that they achieve their end not by chance, but by natural inclination. Now, whatever lacks intelligence cannot move towards an end unless it be directed by some being endowed with knowledge and intelligence as the arrow is shot to its mark by the archer or the electron is shot towards the proton, (laughs) if you will. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end and this being we call God. Now, if it's all right with you, I'd like to read one paragraph of, this is Father Norris Clark, a famous Thomist who recast the fifth way in his own paragraph and I think it's quite powerful if that's all right. Oh, please do. You have all all the time in the world. So this is um, a short paragraph, slightly longer than the one you read, but it's from Father Norris Clark's, he passed away, but from his article, Is Natural Theology Still Viable Today? Um, I think this was published in the 70s or 80s, but the version I got it was from a book, uh, Explorations in Metaphysics, Being God in Person from 1994. So here's Father Clark, quote, The ordering of the natural properties of these elements in the universe towards dynamic interaction must be constituted prior priority of causal dependence, not necessarily temporal priority, um, to their actual operations of interacting, since they interact according to their already constituted natures. But this means that they must be ordered toward, constituted in view of, not yet existing future actions or possible future actions. Now, only a mind can constitute out of possibility a future order, can order a means to an end, as St. Thomas likes to put it. Only a mind can thus make present in its field of consciousness the future and the possible, which do not, which do not exist in themselves and can only have a mental presence. A purely material being without consciousness is locked into the here and now, of its place in space and time. 
To order possibilities with a view to future action is, again, almost a definition of mind, or certainly one of its most characteristic functions. Thus, the cosmos-wide dynamic order of our world system necessarily requires a cosmos-ordering mind to constitute its order, end quote. Oh, I love that. That's great. Um, so, so I guess it sounds like it's arguing from the idea of like uh, like causal pairs. Like we have your electron <laughs> and your proton. Right. Each one has a nature, which could be um, symbolized by an idea. So both of these have an idea, but they exist in this causal pairing. And the pairing of ideas with one another, that type of composition is the action of a mind. And it relates to our universe. Therefore, the mind relates to our universe by relating these separate ideas. Pretty much. And it's not okay. just the one pair. It's, you know, it's the force Every of gravity. Pair. It's strong and weak forces. It's the uh, asymmetry between matter and antimatter. It's the speed of light. I mean, there's, there's tons of them. There's two really good books if your listeners are interested in. One's by Luke Barnes. Uh, it's B-A-R-N-E-S on Amazon you can get. It. He's a physicist who wrote about all these interesting things. And then there's another one that's an earlier book by Paul Davies, Cosmic Jackpot. And in Europe, it's called the Goldilocks Enigma. And they lay out what physicists have discovered and how you, you need this, this orchestra of all these pairs of things interrelated, working just right to get this amazing you know, cosmos that we have now that we live in with, with life forms and, and podcasts. And uh, it's just you know, like Clark lays it out. You know, that has to be orchestrated from the beginning. Uh, and that's kind of what only a mind can do. And that's about as, you know, I think he put it pretty well. <laughs> I, I would have to agree. All, All right. right. Well, I think we just solved the problems of philosophy. I'm kidding. <laughs> of course we did. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. I'm sure there's so many other places we can go. I mean, I told you I have the, the habit of creating the same podcast <laughs> and again, what with the fourth way again and again. So we might have to have another fifth way episode because because I think this one definitely goes deep. I think this is a really interesting one. There's so little written in Aquinas's um, um, uh, defense there. But there's a lot to be expanded out. So very cool way if people want to dig in. Uh, but if people want to dig into stuff that you are working on, where would they, where would they find such things? Well, I, I do recommend um, on Amazon, I have a book I wrote with Matt Fred. Does God Exist? A Socratic Dialogue on the Five Ways of Thomas Aquinas. And it's written like a play. I know you've read it. Um, you know, it's a guy and a girl in a coffee shop and they go back and forth about the five ways. So I think a lot of people will enjoy that. I'm working on a new book now, which is, it's not top secret, but it's also... In the very early stages but that would be like a kind of an introduction to aquinas's existential metaphysics and when that's out one day that would be like you know well i'll be really happy because that's something i want, wanted to do for a long time <laughs> nice oh that sounds really cool I, i'll be interested to see what what's up with that i did read the uh, the first one I, I think i mentioned to you by email i used to bartend a local craft brewery and i would keep a little library so when I would talk to people, sometimes God would come up and I would offer a few defenses or talk to it at whatever objections they have. And then I would have reading materials. And yours was my beginner, like it's in a dialogue form. It covers all five ways. It's uh, solid stuff. I could, I could trust exactly what it's saying. And it, it really grabs the reader and pulls them in. I gave away a lot of those books, by the way. Um, so I'm sure they're still in circulation. So now, I have to ask you that. two quick questions about that. Number one, sure. um, did a number of people find that the book helped them or did they say, ah, eh, it's meh? <laughs> 
That's the no, I, I, I would definitely say that it changed some minds. Uh, but there's a difference between changing a mind and changing one's life in action, as, uh, of course. Sure. So I think a lot of people went from a state of, I have no idea, or I'm modestly against the idea of God, to, whoa, I had no idea that there were such arguments. Ah, yes, yes, yes. And um, <laughs> quite and other... impressed, and to the point of, okay, I will cautiously accept this is the case. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, so great you know, obviously <laughs> I want them to think on their own. You know, the book wasn't written to uh, indoctrinate, but more to help people explore these ideas and think about for themselves. But, but let me ask you, the second part of the question is, did any women take it and find it interesting? And the reason why I asked this question is because one of my friends who's a psychologist gave the book out to a few people. And he said that the men in his psychological practice found it helpful, but not the women. The women wanted a little more romance or something. I don't know what it was, but <laughs> what, did you find it with women or what happened? You know, interestingly, it was, um, I think it was exclusively men that would take me up on reading one of the books. Um, the, whereas the women were more interested in um, a person explaining it to them, having that face-to-face -face actual conversation. Guys are like, yep, cool, take the book, read it later, I'll let you know what I think. <laughs> uh, well, you can't please everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I will tell a, a funny quick story. This one will this one will blow your mind. As far, there was one time where a lady took me up on reading a book. Um, she was a, a, um, a stay-at-home mom, uh, a couple kids and she dealt with anxiety and stuff like that and she wasn't religious so we, we talked a little bit about stuff and I said well kind of to get her in that right direction tried to get her interested in philosophy and I said well have you read anything by Marcus Aurelius his book the meditations you might you might appreciate that that would kind of help you realize what to do with these feelings and um, you know create that internal nexus of control and stuff so she took me up on it she read it Every single morning, kind of like devotional material. And this part will blow your mind. She sold whatever car she had. She bought a Dar Dodge Charger RT with the Hemi and a motorcycle. And she would roll up to the bar like in a on a motorcycle. She's like, yeah, anxiety's fine. Everything's good. It completely changed her personality. <laughs> wow. I wonder what Marcus Aurelius would say about for buying a motorcycle. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I have no idea. I kind of want to read back and say, is there anything about motorcycles? Now, now wait a minute. Did, did she find uh, the God of the Stoics, the the eternal reason, the, the logos fire in the universe? Or did she not use it for that? She just used it for anxiety medication. You know, I didn't follow up on where she went with that, but to my knowledge, it was um, realizing that she could shape her um, her reaction to the world in a very thick way. And that helped her tackle anxiety, a bunch of other problems and, and realize that she can kind of chart her own course. See, now this is great. You 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 were a bartender who, who was not just filling their bellies, but helping their souls with books. It's books and beer, you see? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I kind of miss it. It was great. I would do a philosophy corner sometimes where I go over to one corner and I would just pick a concept and I would kind of explain it. There was another corner, which was the history corner that I would tell stories from history in an entertaining way. So, oh, oh that's yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, this was fantastic. I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, thanks for coming on. It was great to chat with you.